channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host, Ron Baker, and on today's show, we are interviewing Father Robert Sirico of the Acton Institute. Well, welcome to the show, Father Sirico. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me, Ed. The, the privilege of, uh, is all ours. R- Ron and I have been huge fans of yours for, for quite some time, ever since we were introduced to the, the call of the entrepreneur. And let's, uh, let's start by saying, first, we have one thing in common. We're both born in Brooklyn. Oh, really? Where were you born? <laughs> uh, I, I was, uh, until I was five, brought, raised in Cypress Hills. Oh, great. You don't yeah. sound... <laughs> yes, I, I worked very hard in college. I, I, I minored in theater. <laughs> <laughs> and I must admit it was a struggle, but uh, and, and after a glass of wine, sometimes it does come back. <laughs> oh, you know, when I'm reading the scriptures in public, when I come to that passage that talks about the law of the Lord, uh-huh. I always shift into the law of the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it's a danger sometimes. But, you uh, laugh at me, Ron. You laugh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. Sorry. I am usually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understood you perfectly, Father. <laughs> if you have any trouble, you'll translate it. Yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, so, my my, in fact, my, all of my uncles went to Bishop Lachlan. So we're sure, sure. Ha- happy to have you. Uh, but but, so how does a, how does a kid from Brooklyn <laughs> become a uh, Catholic priest who then then founds a free market think tank in Grand Rapids, Michigan? <laughs> Well, you know, I'd have to say if we're going to start in Brooklyn, it's a story I tell in my book about a lady who lived in an apartment right across from ours, and she was baking cookies one day and uh, gave them to me. And as she did, I saw on her arm some blue tattooed numbers. And I had no idea what that meant. I was about five years old at the time, and I asked my mom, and she said, well, that's because people treated her the way uh, cowboys lasso uh, calves and branded them. And immediately I knew, uh, right in that experience and in that answer my mom gave me, that human life was precious and that it deserved dignity and freedom. And uh, the rest of it was unfolding of that, not not in a straight trajectory either, in that I was confused about what, it meant to uh, call for justice. Uh, in the 60s, I was involved with the left, uh, mostly in the 70s in California. But then somebody gave me some books to read. I was away from my faith uh, for a long time in, the, uh, in my teens and in my early 20s. But when I got these books on economics to read, I began to ask uh, questions just not about the social order, but about the nature of human beings. 
And it was there that I bumped back into God, went into seminary, and found the same stuff in seminary that I found on the streets of Hollywood, California, you know, the kind of left-wing uh, call for justice that was so mistaken. And uh, worked my way through all of that, and then once I was ordained, I founded the Acton Institute uh, here in Grand Rapids. And well, just I, the question that comes up as, as a Catholic myself, what, is, what does your bishop think of all of this? Well, we have a relatively new bishop here. Uh, he's been here a year. And frankly, when I'm with him, I mean, he, he knows of the work of the Institute. and He's met a lot of bishops from around the world who, um, uh, you know, have told him how favorably impressed they are. But most of my dealings with my bishop have to do with my parish and, and my work as a priest. So, uh, as I say, he's new. Uh, if, if you're asking, what do some other bishops think? <laughs> Okay, that's fine. I can only be glad I'm not under their jurisdiction. <laughs> fair, fair, fair enough. Fair enough. You wrote a fascinating book a couple of years ago that both Ron and I read feverishly, and that is Defending the Free Market, The Moral Case for a Free Economy. And we thought we'd start the interview off by, by asking you a couple of questions f- from that. Um, sure. And what why that book? I mean, I, I think I understand. I get the, your background, but why particularly that that book? Well, because I, you know, I thought it was important to make some of the connections that I had made in my journey, uh, both back to my faith and uh, in my study of economics and and in the the work that I do at the institute. So I wanted that book. I, I have several other books I'm working on right now too. Uh, but I wanted that book to be a, a kind of apologia for what I'm probably most well known for, and that is the uh, moral promise of a free society. And I began writing it more didactically, but then realized that I'm most effective as a preacher, and so I used a lot of stories in the book to illustrate, um, stories from real life to illustrate uh, why the free society was important and most beneficial to the most vulnerable people. You know, the stereotype about advocates of the free society is all they care about is money. Uh, and I think there's a far more um, profound and anthropological basis of why human beings should be free to act uh, in society, both because that's the only way people can work out their own salvation uh, you know, if we're not free, we, we're not moral agents. And also because uh, the practical reality is that if you're going to feed the poor, you have to know something about um, how to build uh, industries of agriculture and food production and shelter and clothing and all the rest that make life uh, more livable. Father Sirico, this is Ron, and again, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. And, and like Ed said, we are enormous fans of your book and your work. And you say in your book, Defending the Free Market, that business is spiritual. And I loved how you said this. You said, in search of excellence is the beginning of the search for God. Playing off the title, I think, of the book, In Search for Excellence, the business bestseller. Could you elaborate on that? Well, what I meant by that was what I see business people doing uh, 
is to try and make the best use they can of the resources that are available to them to have the deepest and uh, most productive uh, collaboration with others because people in a market economy never do it by themselves. They always do it in conjunction with other people. And when they have to do that voluntarily both ways, uh, this search for the excellent, the in a material sense, in an economic sense, the, the best product or the most efficient ways of distributing the product or advertising, that these are a, a kind of unstated, very often, search for truth. Uh, what is the reality here? Uh, what, what do people really need? What do, um, what do these processes, uh, what's the truth of how to design this or balance that or whatever it happens to be? And I think in a way that's a kind of uh, proto-gospel in the sense that uh, before the full explanation of the mystery of human life, we come, we bump into other smaller truths in the universe that can lead us to greater truths. And so I like to think of business in its best sense. I, I, I understand that there is bad business. I understand that there are bad business people. But I think those are the people who turn against um, this kind of innate call in nature to the good, to the excellent, and to the ultimately to the true. Right. I, I, it's kind of like Michael Novak's point that business is serious moral enterprise. It, and, it ought and to it, be. And it actually instills virtues. Yeah, it actually instills virtues in people, prudence, risk-taking, kindness to others, etc., right? Yes, yes, it, it can. It can teach us many, many practical virtues. In fact, John Paul II, maybe he was reading Michael Novak when, when he said this in his encyclical, I should say St. John Paul II, uh, said in his encyclical Centesimus Annus that uh, entrepreneurship throws a practical light back onto Christianity. And I think that's very significant if you think about that, that the way we do business can be a reflection of the gospel. I, I want to qualify that and say that I'm not saying what prosperity gospel people say, namely that if you produce money, that's a uh, an indication you're being blessed by God. I, I think people can become very rich and be very evil. So there's right. a distinction. But I think even those people are failing in the fullness of their vocation, even if they're prosperous. Father, here, uh, this might be a theological question, but does God want us to be wealthy? N not if that wealth, I mean, he does put it a different way, does God want us to prosper? And I think that's what's important in discussing economics and wealth, is to understand, and this is why I emphasize the anthrop anthrop anthropological nature of the vocation, the economic truth about ourselves is only one truth among many truths that constitute the human reality. Um, and I don't think that wealth is always a blessing to some people, but that depends on the person. Does God want us to prosper? Does he want us to be happy? Yes. Does wealth always do that for given individuals? No. And I think that is especially the case when we become too obsessed with material things, when they become our gods, when we replace the eternal God of the universe with 
baubles and things and gadgets and controls. Um, so, uh, you know, life is, is a, a, an enormous mystery. And if we just settle for the here and now, um, which isn't to say we should ignore the here and now, but if that's all we think exists, we're denying a very part of who we are as human beings, which is transcendent in part. Right. You know, you also wrote that there is a total lack of under- economic understanding in virtually all seminaries. Would you still say that's true today? Well, certainly um, the situation is a little different. Uh, I do think, you know, we, we did a survey at good number of years ago of seminaries, and we found very few of them teach any kind of basic economics. Uh, in Catholic seminaries, they, they even fail to teach basic management principles, which is odd because, I mean, I understand why that's the case. Uh, the curriculum is so jammed, and we used to have a, a system where a guy would come out of seminary and would be under some kind of tutelage for a number of years before he was given his own uh, parish. But it's odd because... Almost all priests are going to be managing small enterprises, in effect. And if you don't know how to read an accounting ledger, if you don't know how to hire people and fire people and hold people accountable and all the rest of that, uh, then I think you're really at a disadvantage. But on the economic front, I think it's important for any minister of the gospel, any religious leader who's going to speak out on behalf of the poor, to understand what poverty really is and not just kind of um, invent good intentions to take care of the poor because that doesn't feed people. Uh, I do think there is, a, uh, in many cases, a great ignorance of how markets function. Um, perhaps with the, again, in the Catholic Church, uh, the later vocations that have come in, these older men who come in, they've had business experience that might help some. Now, the Protestants are a different bowl of wax because a lot of them may actually have jobs while they're pastoring or have had jobs before. Uh, and the Jewish community is very different altogether because uh, rabbis uh, do work and they are allowed to work. And enterprises is uh, kind of an integral part of the, the Jewish cultural experience. Well, this has absolutely been fascinating. And this, uh, Father, thank you for, again, being on the show. We're going to continue the conversation after our first break. But you, in the first 15 minutes, have really summed up why we named this show The Soul of Enterprise, because we are definitely kindred spirits in in this regard. So we look forward to continuing this conversation after our message from our sponsor, Leading Results. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue. 
being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit verisage.com you may also tweet us at verisage that's v-e-r-a-s-a-g-e now back to the soul of enterprise well welcome back everybody we're here with father sirico and uh, just as a reminder folks you can Email myself or Ed at TSOE at Verisage.com. We're getting more emails from people with, with some fantastic questions that we will definitely deal with on future shows. And you can uh, certainly find us on Twitter at the hashtag TSOE. And Father, back to what you were saying before about the under, lack of understanding uh, of, of economics and seminaries. I know the the Catholic Church is, and rightly so, concerned about poverty, as I, as I think most sentient human beings are. But I guess my question is, we can talk about the root causes of poverty or understanding poverty, but poverty needs no explanation. It's the right. natural condition of man. What right. needs to be explained is wealth. Does the church understand or do its leaders understand, and I, I guess I'd put the the current pope in this category, do they understand that wealth is the only known antidote to poverty? <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of an axiom, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Um, <laughs> it's a Baker <laughs> axiom. <laughs> no, and and uh, evidently not in many cases, you know. Uh, and l- let me let me elaborate on the answer that I that I gave earlier because it, think of the practical experience of most people. Uh, I don't want to just exclusively talk about Catholics because, of course, the work of the Acton Institute is really quite widely ecumenical. The majority of the people we deal with, uh, our funders, uh, the students who come to our programs are from a wide variety of religious backgrounds. But, of course, I know the Catholic Church best. But most priests only come in touch with money that they have collected. You know, they they... they pass the basket or they do some fundraising or a capital campaign program and and then they redistribute it. And if that's the model of economy, collection and redistribution, you can understand that there's going to be something uh, that they don't understand, namely, how did the money get there in the first place, i.e., how do you make money? And that's where it gets dubious uh, for a, a a lot of sometimes complicated reasons. But I've often said that, you know, if you just see the pie as in need of being uh, cut up and redistributed, you, you really overlook the fact that in a dynamic economy, the pie can also grow. And if we have so many, if we if we're so busy about advocating for programs uh 
in the name of the poor that we create programs that make more poor people, we've we've really failed in our vocations. So I think there is a, a serious misunderstanding in many sectors of the church, not as many as before, but in many sectors. And this is particularly sad, given the fact that, now I'll say something controversial, and maybe some of the uh, uh, economists will be surprised at this, but really the invention of economics as a scientific discipline, if you will, uh, comes out of theology. It began in the mid-16th century with the scholastic school in Salamanca, reflections on moral theology that led to questions about, believe it or not, inflation, taxation, trade, just wages, things like that, that were all dealt with in the 16th century. That, that's right. I mean, the early economists of those days, and even up to Adam Smith, referred to themselves as moral philosophers, not as economists. Precisely. Precisely. And and I think that's a more holistic view of the thing, too, which is important. But a lot of reasons this got skewed, and then when we had the Enlightenment and the kind of divorce from faith and reason, uh, economics went off into its own utilitarian trajectory. And then the church just kind of left off in many respects dealing with it. And then you had the rise of communism, and then later on, I'm talking now the 19th century, which is reacted to by Pope Leo XIII in his encyclical Rerum Novarum, where he warns against uh, communism and places a very high premium on private property, even calls it sacred in that encyclical. Not absolute, but sacred. Uh, But then you get into the 20th century, and, and there's a lot of confusion, I think, a lot of the economic theological confusion uh, really occurs in the 20th century. And, and Father, this is Ed, Ed again. And my, my concern as, as both a, a Catholic and as a, uh, a libertarian is that is the next encyclical potentially going to be about libertarianism given some of the comments that the Honduran Cardinal uh, Oscar Rodriguez, um, uh, I think it's is that just Rodriguez or is it Madrigara is the, the last it's, name? Uh, Cardinal uh, Rodriguez Maradiega. Maradiega, yes. And, and <laughs> maybe, maybe we can do a little radio therapy for me, Father, while we're, <laughs> while we're on this. <laughs> I was, uh, I'm really, I'm really uh, tr- trying to put those together. I mean, he pretty much says straight out that, that libertarianism and Catholicism are in, in, in complete conflict with one another. Well, if you look, you're talking about a paper he delivered at the Catholic University of America. Yes, yes. If you, uh, I should uh, make a disclaimer that I know Cardinal Rodriguez, mm-hmm. uh, and we've had some interesting conversations. He's a very charming man. Uh, but if you look at his definition of what he thinks a libertarian is, it's really a very deficient definition of, of the word. Um, he thinks uh, in terms of a strict um, utilitarian uh, homo economicus advocate. And uh, that, of course, isn't what I would suspect you, you mean by libertarian. Libertarian is, is a floating word, too, because uh, even Murray Rothbard had to correct people and say, look, uh, the idea of libertarianism is only, only pertains to the use of force in society. It doesn't have anything to do. I once had a guy come up to me and said, well, uh, I don't understand uh, how Catholics can be libertarians because in Catholic schools, they're very strict. 
And I said, what, what has that got to do with it? And he said, well, you know, that's authority. And I said, no, 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 you're confused. I don't even know where to begin uh, <laughs> raveling confusions here. You know, there's a difference between authority and power. And uh, I think the best of libertarian thought is not against authority. It's against power. Authority is a form of constraint that's internal to the person. You acquiesce voluntarily to uh, authority. Power is a form of constraint that is external to the person. That's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about coercive force. Uh, I'm not concerned about traditions and norms and even religious dogma so as uh, to the extent that it doesn't pertain to the use of force in society. Right, and I, I, th I think what I got the sense too is that that potentially uh, being, I guess, uh, South South American, uh, that he's confusing cronyism with what I believe. I mean, and, and again, I, I do agree that the the word free market has been co opted in a lot of cases. We had a a guest uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, who is a you may may have heard of Deirdre McClowski, yes. and. She has a great phrase that she uses to describe it. She says it's market-tested innovation and supply. <laughs> and and she oh. says, and it, it's clunky, but every word is important. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you know, I think this not only applies to Cardinal Rodriguez, but uh, to some extent to the, the Holy Father himself. Because in Argentina, when you look at business, you're looking at uh, collusion. You're looking at uh, mercantilism. You're looking at what we call crony capitalism, but the word capitalism has been so thoroughly corrupted in uh, Latin American, in the Latin American mind that it's, I think it's better not to use the word rather define what you're talking about, describe what you're talking about. And I found when, for instance, when I'm at conferences with people from the developing world and I'm asked questions about international business and talk about the importance of um, eliminating uh, uh, tariffs and trade boundaries, uh, barriers, they're astounded because what many people, especially in the developing world, think we mean by capitalism is big business. And I'm as against corporate welfare uh, as I am against uh, social welfare. In fact, maybe more so because we spend more money on it. And I think it has the same corrupting influence on business as social welfare has in the inner city. Yeah. Yes. And I, I think the other thing that I was struck by the, his, some of his comments too, and this gets back to what you and Ron were, were talking about is it, it almost is a denial too of, of the, the fact that what it's close to 1 billion people in the last 20 years have gone from abject bone crunching $3 a day, nasty, brutish and short, poverty to something that is livable. Now, this does not mean, by the way, and as you make a disclaimer, that everything's hunky-dory and, and the world is wonderful. There's still a lot to be done, but it's, it's not through, I think, government intervention that this is going to take place. It's, it's through the continued trade among individuals uh, that, that where we will one day, I think, eliminate what we know of as abject poverty. Yes, I, I agree. I mean, St. John Paul II says in that encyclical that I mentioned earlier, uh, man is man's greatest resource. So that it's freeing 
the human person. And, you know, embedded in all of this language, too, uh, for instance, the Holy Father in his um, uh, apostolic letter um, called for, in fact, when he decries uh, free markets, he very often refers to being against economics that exclude people. And if he could make the connection between that notion of exclusion and what we mean by a free economy where everyone is included, everyone can participate in it, uh, then I think we could get somewhere in, in the conversation. But it's part of the reason the Acton Institute exists and we're working uh, in all of those areas. Yes, well, we certainly w- wish you well in that conversation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's my purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> Fair, fair enough fair enough so well we have another break that we're going to get to might as well well let's do it now and uh our uh before and we will get further conversation with father but as ron said you can email us at tsoe at verisage.com pound tsoe on twitter and we will monitor that hashtag so if you have questions for father sirico please uh use that hashtag and let us know about them But we'll be right back after this word from Azamba. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue, being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit BelieveInYourNumbers.com today. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And don't forget the Twitter hashtag is pound TSOE, and we'll be monitoring that during our conversation. We are talking with Father Robert Sirico author of Defending the Free Market, The Moral Case for Capitalism. And 
I just wanted to drill down a little bit with you, Father, on the the concept of, of charity. And I think this leads off of the conversation that we had before the break. But, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a big believer in, in charitable giving. And but one of the things that I, I, I find disturbing is is this notion that we need to give back. And I actually asked, asked Professor McCluskey about this as well. And I'm just curious as to your th- thoughts on it. Uh, I'm very much in favor of giving, but giving back sort of bothers me because I don't really feel that I took in the first place. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I've been using that line for a long time. I don't know if you stole it from me or I stole it from you. Uh, There's a great truth to that. There is also, I think we need to just (laughs) offer a little uh, corrective to it too, because it can get a little too Randian for my taste. (laughs) Think of ourselves as these really radical atomistic individualists in the sense that um, you and I inherited a culture and embedded in Western culture are, are a lot of these traditions and notions and mechanisms of human freedom. Uh, we inherited a language. Uh, we didn't invent that ourselves. So there is something which we have received as a gift, our lives. You know, we didn't invent our lives. We didn't make ourselves. Uh, so there is that something. But I don't like the term give back because it does make it sound like we're I, – I think I first used this phrase when there was um, – uh, who was that um, American black Muslim leader in Chicago? Uh, Farrakhan was urging uh, African-American businesses in um, New York to boycott Jewish and Korean businesses in their neighborhoods because it said that they come to us, I think this is a direct quote, like bloodsuckers taking the wealth out of our communities. And I said, that's nonsense. These are people, they're creating the wealth in your communities. And um, I think that's when I first, you know, kind of tripped on that that concept. So I think there's a great truth to it that that we shouldn't overly emphasize the fact that we're giving back we we should give that to give back is to um uh pay a debt uh to be generous is not paying a debt it's charity it's when you are helping uh, people who are in need because you recognize in them uh yourself there but for the grace of god go i that kind of thing Father, I, I won't ascribe the following to you, but it's my opinion. I, if you look at outfits like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, I, I believe that Bill Gates did more for eradicating poverty by launching Microsoft and running it effectively, putting out products that people value, than the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation will ever have an impact. I mean, it, he, it'll have a tenth of an impact that the, that the company Microsoft uh, create you know had but uh, along with that you did quote somebody in your book that no country has ever developed on aid not one yeah. and when you look at all this philanthropic activity and all the foreign aid that we pour in to solve these problems of poverty they seem to be more concerned about understanding poverty rather than getting to the only antidote which is actually creating wealth <laughs> and and I and I guess my question for you and 
this made me recoil when I first read it. It was Christopher Hitchens. I'm sure you're familiar with oh, yeah. when he said this. He said, Mother Teresa is not a friend of the poor. She's a friend of poverty. And I know that stings. And I, I disagree with almost everything that Hitchens stood for in his life. But that comment has got some truth to it. Does it? Uh no, actually, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think Hitchens ever kind of got Mother Teresa. You know, he never really understood her, no matter how much he researched her. And let, let me offer you another quotation from Mother Teresa. Here's what she said. And tell me if you find any economist or scholar of the free society who can more succinctly destroy the class warfare praxeology of Marxism than, than this. Here's what Mother Teresa said. She said, we do not believe in, we do, first she starts by saying, we, we have no right to condemn the rich. We do not believe in class struggle. We believe in class encounter, where the rich save the poor and the poor save the rich. Mother Teresa was a, a personal lover of concrete people, not the ideas, but the people who were poor. And I think that she did a great deal of good on a, a marvelous level for the poor. Do you ask me if uh, Bill Gates uh, uh, did more to raise people out of poverty than Mother Teresa? Yes. I think that's true from an economic point of view from a material point of view. But when a person is dying, infested with disease and worms and uh, is alone and cold, and this woman comes and embraces that person, that is an act of love. That is an act of uh, right. a beautiful love. One, one reporter was, Mother Ter- was with Mother Teresa once, was covering uh, you know, her, wanted an interview, and Mother Teresa was working, and she was cleaning up one of these people as they were dying. And the reporter was revolted at the sight of the blood and the pus and all the rest of it. And as Mother Teresa was cleaning, uh, washing her hands afterwards, the reporter said to her, I'll tell you very frankly, Mother, uh, I, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And Mother Teresa said to her, neither would I. So it's a, it's a whole different level of calculation. You know what I mean? Uh, Absolutely. I, I mean, charity is is compassionate and uh, no doubt about it. I, I guess I was coming at it just f- from the standpoint of alleviating poverty, which seems to be what everybody talks about. Is there, you know, it just doesn't seem to be a clear understanding that the only way to do that is to create wealth and that this is yeah. not as zero. You're right. But the role some, of poverty, the role of poverty quite manifestly is not to institutionally raise people out of poverty. It's to alleviate the suffering at the moment. Uh, charity is given for particular people at particular times, and some for a long period of time, because some people just need that. You know, they, they have no resources of their own. They're profoundly handicapped or too young or too old. And, and I don't think we have to juxtapose poverty with wealth creation. Uh, that is uh, charity with wealth creation, uh, I think that not only do we see them going hand in hand because charity can't exist without somebody creating the money to donate to charity, but we can't see charity as the normative way in which the poor uh, rise out of poverty. For that, we need jobs. 
We need right. productivity. We need industries. And especially when we can infuse a sense of charity into our industries, that people come to see human beings who are working for them as more than just uh, material objects, but as human beings with a transcendent dignity. Uh, I, I think this is the way we transform business and push uh, the the stereotypes of the evil businessman to the margins. You know, it's, it's funny you bring that up, This the evil businessman, because I, I, I when I do a lot of presentations, one of the things that I've been asking about for some time is, when was the last time that you saw a television show or movie where the business person was the good guy? And um, until recently, the only response I ever got was Batman, because, you know, Bruce Wayne uses his wealth. I said, oh, good, he's a vigilante, right? <laughs> yeah, what did he do for a uh, well, I'm sorry. By the way, what did Bruce Wayne do for a living? You know, I, I'm not sure, to be honest. <laughs> I'm not sure anybody knows. <laughs> he, he had a he had a boatload of cash, though. Yeah, he did. <laughs> um, but but more recently, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. Is a show that's that's that was on PBS. I think it comes to us from the BBC called Mr. Selfridge. And yes, he does have picadillos and and all of these things to make for interesting television. But he is definitely portrayed as the good guy. I mean, he's he's portrayed as being ahead of his time in terms of how he treats his employees. And uh, one of the things that I think that has come up in this show that takes place in the early 1900s is the concept of the deserving poor uh, versus you know institutionalized giving where government is responsible for, for for this and I wonder if you might address that we've got about three minutes until the break that there there is that difference right if it com- when it's coming from government it it's it's again it's not it's it's bad because it's taking from us without our consent but it's also really not as good for the person receiving either yeah in in Catholic social teaching we have this thing called the principle of subsidiarity which basically says that needs are best met at the most local level of their existence, that that people should act as neighbors to those in need. The reason for that is both because it's personal and because the person who acts on behalf of those in need knows the person. So they, they have an insight into what the need really is, as opposed to distant bureaucrats who create programs. You know, it's, it's loving an abstraction rather than loving a poor person. And um, you were talking about television shows. The one I like, and I haven't seen it regularly, but I've seen several episodes, is The Undercover Boss. Because these people are, are, you know, wanting to know their workers, wanting to get to understand their life circumstances. And they bring with them a certain business sense to their their personal relations and even their charity that they show. And it's not like you... You have, on the one hand, this is a nice guy, and on another hand, he's, he's a moneymaker. He's got to make money, which enables him to be a nice guy, too, in a concrete way. So, uh, no, I, I think you're right. And it's the whole battle over abstractions. You know, people love the poor so much. They make government programs to create more people. And we do that even in private charity sometimes. You know, I think you quoted Lady Thatcher in your your book, Father, and where she said, "No one would remember the Good Samaritan if he only had good intentions. Yes. He had money. He had money as well." Wasn't that a great line? She was. It, it, she 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 was full of them, wasn't she? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> speaking of TV, I know I'm saying this parenthetically, but speaking of TV, we we would be remiss if we didn't ask you about your brother, who's a TV star in his own right. <laughs> he is. 
he's, he's done well. And, and he distributes his wealth, too, I might add. My brother was uh, Paulie Walnuts on The Sopranos. He's done a lot of other work along the same lines. You know, he's a character actor, so he plays gangster parts. I don't think he'll be doing Shakespeare in the park anytime soon, but what he does is uh, very authentic. <laughs> my, my personal favorite, Father, is the, the, is the Bensonhurst spelling bee. The- <laughs> oh, mine, too. <laughs> oh yes, yes. Gabagool. Sent me that what in the world is gabagool <laughs> capricola <laughs> how did we get capricola into gabagool oh this is this has just been fantastic and father when we come back from this break we're going to ask you about uh, um, your movie the call of the entrepreneur which i thoroughly enjoyed and folks in the meantime don't forget that you can read about the show at verisage.com slash tsoe we will put up show notes for the show and we will have father sirico's books and links to the acton institute possibly some videos of him uh, so you can get familiar with his work uh, we're enormous fans and uh, right now we'd like to take a break and and hear from our sponsor sage Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit verisage.com you may also tweet us at verisage that's v-e-r-a-s-a-g-e now back to the soul of enterprise well welcome back everybody we're honored to be here with father robert sirico and one of the things, Father, back in uh, when I met you, actually, for the first time, it was in December of 2007 in New York City at uh, one of the premieres of The Call of the Entrepreneur. And boy, what a star-studded panel that was, because you were there and Jay Richards, the, the producer of the film, and, and George Gilder, uh, you guys had a discussion afterwards. But would love to ask you about The Call of the Entrepreneur. How'd that come about? And and it was just such a, a well done movie, very impactful. Well, uh, 
many years ago when I first began the Acton Institute, I, I drafted two documents. One was directed at the religious community, and the other was directed at the business community, and that was called the entrepreneurial vocation. The entrepreneurial vocation, uh, the ideas kind of theologically, philosophically, economically expressed in there, uh, Jay turned into the call of the entrepreneur, which is uh, a documentary tracing three lives, uh, three three business people, uh, each in their own right, very interesting, uh, a man who turns uh, cow dung into uh, fertilizer uh, and has become uh, uh, really quite successful at that, and then a... Uh, uh, finance guy, and then Jimmy Lai, who is probably the heart of the whole uh, documentary, uh, and maybe we can talk a little about him, because he's in the news recently. Yes, and that's what I wanted to ask you about. In fact, uh, I spent some time this morning just, just looking through the, the newsreels, and he is very prominent in the the democracy protests at, in Hong Kong, and uh, it, you know ha- has has been one of the, one of the, the, the few business voices in the in the Hong Kong community that have supported these students and just just wondering are, are, are you still in contact at all with him do you or have you heard anything as to how he's doing well you know I'm a personal friend of Jimmy and his family I've been to his home any number of times for dinner and we've eaten in Rome uh, he loves great food and he's a, a really incredible man I just got an email from him the other day because I sent him a note telling him how much I admired what he was doing. Um, you know what he's not doing, it's important, is he's not bankrolling this revolution in Hong Kong. Uh, he could do that, but he's intentionally not doing that. This is a spontaneous thing that the students are doing, and he's just joining them. Here's a man who is putting his um, business at risk because the uh, communist Chinese don't like him one bit, in fact, a few weeks ago, they raided his home and the home of one of his close associates, looking for evidence that they were really fomenting a revolution and could find none. So he's still free. He's on the barricades every day. He's sitting down there with these kids, eating on the streets with them, talking to them. Uh, and the moving part of that documentary, The Call of the Entrepreneur, where he's interviewed, uh, is when he talks about reading Hayek. And realizing that how it changed his life. I mean, this was a kid who grew up in in communist China, was smuggled into Hong Kong, and has become a billionaire. It's it's really a remarkable story, and he's still a common man. Yeah, the story he tells about getting the chocolate bar on the I guess it's the train platform. Yeah, just as it it it, it yeah. I I can say I have wept more than once. <laughs> there wasn't a dry eye in the house. I could say that every every time I saw the movie. So authentic, so authentic. Yep, really. No, so I, I'm just privileged to call him a friend. Well, it's it's great to know that that he is uh, doing well, and and as you say, he's on. The, I have seen him on the barricades every day, and and do, doing interviews, and is is blunt about it. And the, the conversation even came up that you mentioned about him him bankrolling, and he says, I I don't. He said I I could because you know, but we, and and this gets to maybe something that's in the news here. You know, is is money free speech? And there's lots of folks who are upset by that. But well, is money free speech in Hong Kong? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, we say he's doing well, but, you know, we need to really keep these people in our prayers and our thoughts. 
and whatever support we can offer because they're in a very dangerous situation because this thing has broad ramifications for China and they know it because if they get away with this, this is going to bleed into the mainland. And so the, the Politburo there in China is in a very difficult position. I just hope, Father, that George Gilder's prophecy comes true that uh, when Hong Kong takes over China. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we won't, won't say that too too loud. But, but uh, you know, it, it is, in my view, inevitable. The question is the, uh, how much bloodshed will there be? And that's that's what I hope and pray for is that it is a, a completely peaceful transition. Uh, well, as peaceful as it can be. Um, and, and that's that's my hope for it anyway. Yeah, mine too. But th- this gets into the whole question of uh, international trade, and and then it bleeds into the question of aid. Uh, if you like the call of the entrepreneur, you really have to see this new documentary we put out. It's not even available yet, but we do have clips, a trailer from it, called Poverty, Inc., and it basically asks the question, who benefits from the, the poverty industry? And why is there this poverty industry of, of all of this aid money and NGOs and the UN and then all of the food that's sent over? And what are the, the um, handcuffs that come with that kind of aid that imperils and impedes the natural business instinct in all of these countries? It's a very hard-hitting documentary, and we, we don't even leave the celebrities unsinged in, in this. Oh boy! Now, okay. now you're asking for it. <laughs> yeah, sure. Bring it on. <laughs> I guess. Oh. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, with the Catholic Church, I can take on celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be sure to put post those clips up on our site, Father, on the show notes. That's wonderful. I, I wanted to ask you uh, before we have to end this, unfortunately, but in it towards the end of your book, you wrote that freedom is not a goal or a virtue in itself. Ultimately, the aim of freedom must be the truth. And then somewhere I, w- I was reading in another article that you had written that you value the truth more than you value your freedom. Could could you explain that? Well, yeah, I mean, doesn't that make sense? I mean, freedom is, is uh, an option, right? It's a vacuum. Uh, once you have your freedom, you have to make... You have to make your life. <laughs> you have to make the choices that involve your life and your highest ideals, your highest values. So I would say I would hold to the truth even and, – and, well, I mean not me, Jimmy Lai. Uh, he's holding to the truth of the moral imperative that human beings should be free even though he may himself end up in prison uh, right, over right. this. And, and I think – uh, freedom is very important, but it's the context in which the other important things in our lives become possible. It can also be the opportunity to do evil. People can have the freedom to do evil things. So freedom itself can't be a virtue. It, it's a capacity uh, to choose good or evil, vice or virtue. Right. And, and and those things aren't aren't always completely clear. And I wish we had another another hour hour with you to perhaps go down the the, the conversation of, around ethics. But you know, one of the reasons why I'm a, a libertarian is because I don't always know what's exactly right for me. <laughs> 
how, how can I how can I impose that on someone else? Well, Ed, <laughs> you, know? you better go to confession more often. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. <laughs> Maybe we can do that over Skype next time. No, we can't do that over Skype. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that would Not be with the, with the with the Jesuits, perhaps. <laughs> well, you can do anything with the Jesuits. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, well, one of my my favorite lines is is that you know the reason the Jesuits were invented was to keep the agnostics in the church. So yes, <laughs> <laughs> Father, you had mentioned on the break that you were working on some other books. A- anything that you're willing to share at this point? Sure. Uh, one of the things is a kind of um, I-, I have this working title in my head. I don't know if it'll be the end title, but it's like 101 questions about markets and morality. It's just a compilation of different kinds of questions I've been asked uh, over the years to uh, kind of little catechism with a small c. Uh, I'm also um, playing around with a book on the parables and economics. It's remarkable how much uh, there are economic assumptions based in the parables of of Jesus. And then the third one, which is a little further out because I'm not that old yet, is a a memoir, a a more direct memoir of my, my life, my conversion, my return to the church and my involvement in the freedom movement and uh, what drew me from the left to to uh, to God. Well, maybe I can I can contribute to the, the the parables one. I have this theory about the parable of the laborers, and that that it's not in the text clearly, but that there was a frost coming, and yes. that's that's why the 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 vineyard owner was willing to pay more to those late to those coming in late because the the grapes were going to be worthless the next day. <laughs> Very well have been, you know. I, I... <laughs> whatever it was <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for being on the well, show Father, uh, thank, thank you delighted to be with you guys thanks yes. everyone and your your listeners thank you and we hope you come back uh, when you when you publish some of these other books we'd love to have you back on sure thank you well we'll see you in 167 hours <laughs> okay This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized companies by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at www.verisage.com.